0: Well, good morning, Applewood family. Those of you who are a guest with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming to worship with us this morning. Rachel spoke of the elephant that's in the room that nobody wants to speak of, and that is that this is Phil's last morning leading worship uh, as one of our co-worship leaders. So we're just going to ignore the elephant in the room and not talk about that until the end of the service where we will put Phil in our midst, and we will pray over him and bless him. And uh, then there's lunch afterwards, potluck lunch. If you didn't bring anything, that's okay. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll make it multiply. God will make it multiply somehow. And uh, most importantly, there's a cake that we will have in honor of Phil's leaving. Uh, so come for the cake, if nothing else, and uh, we'll, we'll celebrate his life a bit together. So if I were to tell you that probably most pastors have a fair number of theology books on their shelves, probably wouldn't be a surprise, right? (laughs) We would hope so. Thank you, Tim. If I were to tell you that a good number of those theology books just aren't very good reading, that probably wouldn't come as a surprise to you either, right? In fact, in my seminary days, Sharice and I would laugh, if for some reason I was having trouble sleeping, I'd go downstairs and pull a theology book off the shelf, and sleep came very quickly. (laughs) However, you might be surprised if I told you that some of my favorite theology comes from books written for children. Without a doubt, without a doubt, some of my favorite come from uh, Chronicles of Narnia by C. S. Lewis. And and you remember the scene. I think we've we've talked about it before, the four travelers, Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Susan. They are they have been introduced to to Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver. And Narnia, of course, if you've not read the Chronicles, is is the land of of talking animals. And they have been hearing about the terrible spell of the white witch upon Narnia. And and of course that spell is that it's it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. And so they uh, they've they've heard about this, and then there is a rumor, according to Mr. Beaver, that Aslan has come to Narnia, and Aslan is on the move. Now, of course, they don't know who Aslan is, and says Mr. Beaver, he's the king. He's the Lord of the Whole Wood. He's not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. And then he recites an old prophetic rhyme about the coming of Aslan. And of course, Lucy the human asks, well, is, is he a man? Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly Not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And then, of course, Susan and Lucy are a little unnerved by this, and they ask if the lion is safe, to which Mr. Beaver answers with my favorite lines. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I was reminded of this story because of our, our reading in Mark 3 this week. In Narnia, Aslan's return was not good news to everyone. Certainly was not good news to the white witch and her hordes. How it could not be good news to everyone can, can seem inconceivable to us. Just depends on the everyone. And so... If you haven't read the story, you should, the battle begins. And it is, it is a battle in which we as the people of God, followers of Jesus Christ, are very much a part of. Because the coming of Jesus into Galilee and all of Palestine was not good news to everyone there either. And the continued coming of Jesus into our world as He shows up through His people, His followers, those who are filled with His Spirit and desire to make Him known in the world, that's not good news to everyone either. So, why is the coming of Jesus and the Kingdom of God such bad news to so many people? Anybody want to offer an answer? End of self. End of self. Yeah. End of self and, and I would say, self-control. Self-control. Allie, you were going to say something. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And when you understand that that's what Jesus is about, whoa, That. That's, that's a, whole, a whole different deal. We humans are born with a control gene, I think. Uh, our medical staff could check on that for you, but we're born with a control gene that is powerful. It is a part of the sin package that comes with being fallen creatures, and I think that it's related to our desire to live life the way that we choose to live it. So to the best of our ability... We humans try to control things that threaten our choices so that we can live the way that we want. But a quick look at world history tells us that really hasn't worked out that well. Those who are stronger often gain power, enough to control others, And so they live as they want with others under their control for a time. And then those who are controlled get tired of it and they find a way to throw off the control of the others so that they can then become those who are in control. And of course, behind it all in the spiritual realm is a power that longs for, that craves for control. Standing in rebellion against God for far longer than any of us knows. The white witch, who sought to rule Narnia and control its inhabitants, exists in reality in the form of Satan, desiring to rule the earth and control its inhabitants. So, when Jesus shows up announcing, now is the time, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, it is a message of change. As people begin to do the things to which Jesus is calling them, repent and believe... Change will come. News of the kingdom of God is that there is a new way to live life. And that will happen when people begin to change their thinking about God, their thinking about themselves, and really they're thinking about all of life and how it should be lived. Death of self. And follow Jesus. Walk in his direction with him away from the old. That's not popular with the control that people want to have in their lives. You remember the story of Jesus in chapter 2, answering the question of why his disciples did not fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees. I received an email this week from someone in the Applewood family and I'm just so glad that some of you choose to, to interact around our text together. Their observation of that was that it seemed like Jesus was saying, You can't add me, you can't just add me to what you already are doing. Exactly. Jesus told those who asked him that old wineskins will burst when new wine is put into them, and both the wine and the wineskins are lost. He was bringing something new and fresh and powerful and life-changing and old ways of thinking and religious habits must be replaced with the life and the teaching of Jesus. They, they just they can't exist together. Jesus, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not safe. He just isn't. He is God in the flesh the God man and the very fact of his existence as God man tells us that his life and his message aren't safe in terms of comfortable and 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 what we human folks tend to want he has come to challenge the world's system of control and And I know I've said to you a bazillion times over the years that Jesus is after the heart of every human being. That's always what he's after, is the heart. Because that place in Jewish thought in the first century was the control center of the person. The heart was the person. The heart is where decisions and commitments are made, where relationships are forged, and and where, where emotions are are felt, experienced powerfully. When the Spirit of Christ takes over the heart of a person, whoa, Jesus knew that then kingdom of God values would begin to flow from that person's life. Those values, they begin to shape a person's thinking and actions in everyday life. And when that happens, It is an indication that God has begun to take control. One of the dumbest things that I ever did in my life was in my college years, I owned a 1965 Triumph Spitfire. Now, you know, if you know British cars, those little roadsters are not built to race. They're not built for speed. Boy, can they corner. Whoa! it, it, the car's on rails when you go around corners. So, growing up in Portland, I had a buddy visiting from, from college who staying at my house for a week, and we tooled off to the Columbia Gorge and took off on the old Columbia Gorge Highway, which is essentially something like this, all through the Cascade Mountains along the gorge, multiple caution signs on the corners that warn you you know, 25, 30, 35 miles an hour. Not that day. It was sunny out, rare, for that time of the year in Portland. And away we went in the triumph. I think the best we did was pushing 65 miles an hour around a 30-mile-an-hour corner. Back tires just skidding around the corner, and that front end was just in there. It was an absolutely stupid thing to do, But I lived. (laughs) Praise be to the Lord. It was not safe at all. Jesus' call upon our lives, my friends, is to take our hands off the wheel around the curves of our lives and let Him steer. And it's so counterintuitive, it makes no sense. It is not safe, but I have to tell you, at least it's not stupid. Because the Spirit, the Spirit will quite likely lead us to think and do things that run contrary to the values of our culture. Values that focus upon the person. Values that focus upon a person's individual rights. A person's status a person's security. We come out of the womb with that control gene that wires us to live safe and secure lives, to be prudent and wise, to be concerned about the future, to love ourselves and take care of what is ours And in walks Jesus and says, it's time to change. Are you kidding? No. It's time for the kingdom of God to break into world history. Repent of the world's system of thinking about yourself and others, about God and the way he works in the world, and follow me and believe in me, says Jesus. And buckle your seatbelts because it's going to be a wild ride. Let's stand together and read our text from Mark 3 this morning. Can we flip ahead, Vic? There we go. Thank you. Then Jesus entered a house... And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first dying him up, Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside My sisters and my brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord for us. Go ahead and be seated. If you're reading along and you read through Mark 3 perhaps this week or or at some point you have read it, uh, you know that Mark records prior to what we just read in our text that Jesus went up on the mountainside. And he called his twelve followers, those who would be closest to him, and and he names them all. And if you're like me, you you just you read that, and the little bit that you know about some of those individuals that piece together in some of the other gospels for us as well. I read that, and I think to myself, what a ragtag bunch they were. They're, you know, there were fishermen and and tax collectors and and zealots and 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 possibly. Uh, troublemakers, you know, zealots could be troublemakers. They weren't real popular, um, you know, with the Roman Empire. And, and Jesus gave James and John the name Sons of Thunder. I kind of wonder, where did that come from? And Mark writes that Jesus chose them to be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out Demons. And then we just read the very first thing, according to Mark, that the twelve experience with Jesus is his own family believing him to be out of his mind you know what What is the matter with him we've We've got to go rescue him the the The, the Greek word that Mark uses there is is to to take him forcibly to to remove him from where he is, so his family thinks he's nuts. And the teachers of the law accuse him of being demon-possessed. What do you suppose the ragtag bunch is thinking at this point? What on earth have we gotten ourselves into? You know? So on the screen, if we can put up our next slide, Vic, I would just like to have each of you talk with a neighbor. About this question. What do you think Mark wants his readers to understand about daily life as a follower of Jesus? See what you think. Couple minutes. All right. Well, let's talk about it for just a couple minutes. Again, this is this is Mark's record. You know, and, and this is the way that Mark has put these things in order. And he by inspiration of God's Spirit, and he has he has his. Jesus' followers experiencing these things right from the get-go. What do you think is going on? What does Mark want his readers to know about life as a follower of Jesus? What do you think? Which is really popular with people, don't you think? Yeah. You know, friends at school, co-workers, you know, neighbors. Absolutely. And that made him, of course, very popular with the authorities. Some contention there as well, right? Right? What else? Yes, yes. Jesus just evokes that kind of response. To me, that is just such significant evidence for the spiritual battle that we're part of. You want, you want, to, you want to live that out. And sometimes, wouldn't you agree that, that even the hurtful stuff can come from places and persons that, that surprise us? Would, would you not agree? Um, some have experienced that. Yes, sir. Some of the most resistance I get today is from other Christians. Mm, that's interesting. That. Okay, okay. Yeah. Good, good, good. All right. Good stuff. So let's put the, uh, the mission statement back on the board, if we could. The, first, the, uh, the last slide there. Vic, thank you. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote this Opposition is a fact. Opposition is a fact. The Christian who is not conscious of being opposed had better watch out, for they are in danger. Opposition is a fact. I think Mark's intention here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is to to impress upon his readers that Satan opposes the work of God with his every breath and will use anything and anyone to keep the kingdom of God from breaking into this world in which we live. Why? Because Satan wants control. Satan does not want God to be honored, to be glorified. He, he wants no one to experience life in God for which they were created. He wants to maintain control. Unless we somehow miss that point, Mark is suggesting that Satan can and will use tactics to distract the follower of Jesus from being part of that mission to which we have been called. That mission. And the distractions, as I mentioned, can come from places that that might surprise us, places that we we don't expect. Mark wants us to know, and this will probably sound a little crazy, but we don't live in a neutral world. Either. Either a person knows God or they don't. And if they don't know God, then that means as I read the scripture, that that they do not have the Spirit of God indwelling them. They cannot understand the beauty and the wonder of the values of the kingdom of God that God's people are called to live out. Now, that doesn't mean that they're horrible people. Don't hear that. Some of the nicest people we all know are not followers of Christ. But we can't expect kingdom values from those who don't love our king and are not indwelled by his spirit. I mean, let's be honest. We, as God's people who are indwelled by his spirit, have a hard enough time with some of those values. So it's not a neutral world in, in which we live. In the first century, as Lee suggested, there is nothing more important to a Jew than their immediate family and also the authority of the religious Leaders. It's not by coincidence that Jesus says some of his harshest things in all of the Gospels, and they are directed at the religious authorities. And some of his most challenging words are related to the family, as, as we've read here in Mark this morning. The values of the kingdom of God, my brothers and sisters, they're so countercultural to the world in which we live. They can be thought of and will be thought of by many as unsafe, unwise, impractical, stupid, perhaps even by those that we know well and love and and trust. Now, here's the thing. You know I'm not a person that believes that demons hide behind every rock and tree, right? That's not me. Nor do I believe that every non-Christian is somehow possessed by an evil spirit. I do believe that because we do not live in a neutral world, the powers of darkness are all around us, influencing the thoughts and the actions of people far, far more than we may think. A quote I read this week by Mark Twain, you know that... The verdict isn't in on whether or not he he really was a lover and a follower of of Christ. (laughs) Twain said, you know, we may not pay Satan reverence. We shouldn't, for that would be indiscreet. But we can at least respect his talents. A person who has, for untold centuries, maintained the imposing position of spiritual head of four-fifths of the human race and political head of the whole of it must be granted the possession of executive abilities of the loftiest order. We're dealing with a force here. The last thing that that force, the enemy of God, wants us to believe is that a world operating on the values of the kingdom of God could be a beautiful place. The last thing the enemy of God wants is for us to think that life surrendered to the king could be a good life, a place in which living could actually be fabulous in terms of the condition of our soul and the outlook of our lives. The enemy does not want us to believe that Jesus came to bring us new life and intends for us to live out that life and kingdom of God values now in this life. Thinking and living them in such a way that God is made known to our world and its inhabitants. The enemy does not want that. Think for a moment about your family and your closest friends. If you were to ask them What they want for you in this life, what would they say? What would the answer be? Some might say, well, I I want for you to have good health. I want for you to have all that you, you need. I want you to be happy. I want you to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in the life that you live. Jesus' family showed up, probably all of them at one point wanting that for Jesus, and on this occasion thinking he was crazy and sought to rein him in in his message to them. His message was a stunning one. The ragtag bunch that he was hanging out with, they were his family, the insiders, as Lee put it because they were on his mission and learning to think about life with the values of God's kingdom. Anyone doing the will of his father was a member of his family. And what is that will? To make God known in the world through a life that is lived for his glory, which calls attention to God and what he has done through his son. Were the members of Jesus' biological family Possessed? Not at all. I don't think. But even after years of living with him and undoubtedly learning his heart for his heavenly father, they were more concerned about others thinking about Jesus in this situation. And truth be told, maybe they were concerned about what others were thinking about them because he's a member of the family. And so they came to rescue him. And perhaps themselves, from further embarrassment. Where does that kind of thinking come from in a person? Well, it comes from a human heart that is more concerned about oneself than it is about following after God, no matter what it might cost or how others might see it. And I would say that that is thinking that is influenced by the enemy. Because the enemy and the powers of darkness, that influence is pervasive in our world. And the religious authorities were so influenced by the enemy in their thinking that they accused Jesus of doing amazing, life giving things that he did in the power of Satan. Really? We look at that and we think how on earth could anybody be so stupid? What was that about? I go back to my word. Ultimately, I I think it was about control. They saw crowds of people following after Jesus. Realized that they were going to lose business if this continued. People preferred Jesus to them. I think they were, they were jealous of the competition and they were concerned about the people departing from the truth as they interpreted it refer back to Jesus and the parable of the wineskins. If you read the first part of the chapter, you saw Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath, healing a man with a deformed hand, knowing full well that the religious authorities would disapprove because it was the Sabbath. What on earth? Mark tells us that Jesus was angry at them. Asking them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? They didn't answer. And then in our text this morning, he tells the authorities that to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to that of Satan is the unforgivable sin. Jesus was not interested in winning a popularity contest. Jesus was interested in in doing the will of his father and making the goodness and the grace and the glory of God visible for everyone to see and be drawn to. He was intent on living the life that his father called him, no matter what the cost. I was tempted to do more this morning with the unforgivable sin. I'm not going to go there. I'll pick it up next week for just a couple minutes. I promise. Um, I, I was struck with something that just seemed more appropriate to our ending this morning uh, with what we have seen from Jesus, the challenge of living in a world that is not neutral, a world that either is for God or, or against God. Satan will use anyone, anything to distract us from following Jesus with abandon and abandon. And I'll be the first to tell you, I struggle to know what that looks like in the day-to-day of my life. But here's what I do know, and what I really believe, and what I really want to live into. The Spirit will speak things into our lives. and Usually it's about something or someone that impacts our lives in some way. He will speak into our lives in ways that we will easily write off, not pay attention to based on our assessment of what it will take from us. The Spirit has spoken into my life numbers of times and I think about it for a second or two and then I realize, wow, that will take a lot from me financially, in terms of my resources. How will a decision like this impact my my family? What will people think of me? Sometimes my response is just, that's nuts. Who would do that? It was a phone call that one never wants to get, writes this pastor. A friend called from Ohio to say that our mutual friend, Debbie, was dying of leukemia and was at Cancer Center in Seattle. Later, Debbie's husband called, telling me that she had slipped into a coma. The doctors had given her two or three days to live. Debbie's two adult children had flown out to say their goodbyes. He invited me to come and pray. I admit this was a huge stretch of my faith. But I asked a friend to go with me and we set out for Seattle as we drove. John 14, 12 to 14 keep running through my mind. I tell you the truth anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now was my chance to prove that I really believed those verses. Could we really do the things that Jesus did? Would he really do the things we asked in his name at the hospital? We introduced ourselves to Debbie's family, and they approached her bed. I silently asked the Lord what to pray. Luke's account of Jesus rebuking a fever came to my mind. Debbie, however, was a sad sight. By all outward appearances, what I was about to pray seemed impossible. Nevertheless, I prayed, "'Lord, I come to you based on the authority and power you have given me because of Jesus.' Jesus, you said we could do even greater things because of your power in us. You told me in John 15 that if I abide in you and your words abide in me, I can speak anything and it will be granted. So right now, in the name and the authority of Jesus in me, I rebuke the cancer and the death. In Jesus' name. My prayer was simple. Based on scripture, spoken in faith, and the authority of Jesus' name, nothing happened at that moment. So my friend and I said Goodbye. Debbie continued to be on my mind, but I also knew the Lord had heard my prayer. It was all in his hands. A week later, my phone rang. It was Debbie. She had awoken from her coma and asked the medical team to unlock her life support. She had heard that I had visited her several days before and had prayed for her. Would you please come back, she asked. So the next day, I drove back to Seattle to see with my own eyes what the Lord has done. We were then able to share the gospel with her family as a result of Debbie's healing. Her son and his wife received Christ, now are joyfully serving him. And to this day, four days later, four, four years later, excuse me, no cancer has returned. So here's how I want to end this morning. I, I want us to, to take a few moments to be fully mindful and prayerful about things that perhaps the Spirit has prompted us to do lately or at some point in our lives. And we have just quickly thought, no, it makes no sense. I can't do that. Don't have the time. Don't have the resources. What would people think? I realize that, that there may be some of you here who have never considered something like that. And, and if you're a follower of Christ, I, I, want, I want you to take a few moments in this time of prayer and quiet to, to just ask God, are, are there some things that you would like for me to do as a follower of Jesus in this world called to live out the values of the kingdom of God are the things that, that you would want me to do? Is there something that you want me to do? And would you make that clear to me? For those of you who are like myself and who have heard those kinds of things often in my life and have said, no, maybe it's time to revisit those. And please understand, I'm not calling us to craziness here. I'm not calling us all to to do what this story illustrated could be possible if God chooses to use us in that way. But we'll never know unless we learn to hear the voice of the Spirit and and risk stepping out and believing, repenting of our old ways of thinking and believing in the one who calls us to live out the values of the kingdom for God's glory and to, to see things change as a result of our belief. Does this make sense? Could we pray for a few moments together that God would just speak clearly into our lives no matter where we're at? And that the Spirit would give us the strength and the courage to, to maybe step into an experience, a relationship, a commitment. And perhaps at some point, maybe even this morning or in this week, share it with a brother or a sister in Christ. And let them pray and uh, walk with you in this commitment. Let's pray together. Christ team, come on up and lead us as we respond. God, our Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, as you have perhaps spoken into our lives this morning, give us ears to hear, hearts that are filled with courage that we might even take a small step, just a small step this week, into a relationship, into a circumstance, to a new experience where there will be opportunity if we are obedient to follow opportunity for the kingdom of God values that transform life, to transform our world, perhaps even in just a small to your praise and to your glory, not to ours, not our attention, not our name, not our reputation, none of that nonsense, but for you. Give us courage to to live with the results, be it affirmation or rejection of who you are. We are called to follow and to listen. Amen. Amen.